In Mormon fundamentalism, there are names that everybody knows. Then there are a distinct few whose influence is felt all over the community. On this episode, we talk about one such man, Ogden Kraut. I sit down with Kevin Kraut, Ogden's son, to talk about his dad. We cover Ogden's upbringing, his mission, and his work as a Mormon fundamentalist historian and author. Some of the most fascinating portions is hearing about Ogden's interaction with folks like Coyle, Bruce R. McConkie, Hugh Nibley, and Cleon Skousen. And that's next on this edition of the Mormon Renegade Podcast. So I just want to take a moment to thank you, the listener. When I started this podcast, I wasn't sure if anyone would really listen. Now, to my surprise, this thing has taken on a life of its own. And that's all due to you, the listener, spending your time here with me, and it means a great deal to me. Now, as a husband and father, I'm keenly aware of how important time is. It feels like there's just never enough of it. So when you are spending your time here listening to this podcast, I feel a responsibility to never waste your time. In that spirit, as this podcast has grown, I feel like I need to do you, the listener, justice. I want to continue to produce good content and upgrade the audio quality. That takes better equipment and better software, and that all takes money. Now, I've tried to advertise, but you'd be surprised. There's not a lot of people wanting to advertise on a Mormon fundamentalist podcast. I know, surprising, right? Now, if you want to help support the podcast, you can do that one of two ways. The first is go over to mormonrenegade.com and hit the Donate tab. There you can make a one-time donation, or you can go ahead and set it up to be a monthly recurring donation. Your choice entirely. Now, option number two, because I'm a capitalist, if you want to head on over to mormonrenegade.com, click on the store button, you're going to find that we've got some new swag out. We got some t-shirts, we have a tote, we have cell phone cases, water bottles, coffee cups, we got a bunch of stuff and more is going to be on the way. So, if you feel like that's something you could do, again, head on over to Mormon Renegade and check all that stuff out. If you're not in that position to do so, I completely understand. We're all squeezed right now with high gas prices and high inflation. So even if you can't, please keep listening and maybe keep the podcast in your prayers so we can continue to grow, produce good content, and better audio quality. Thank you. Listening to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. Welcome back to the Mormon Renegade Podcast. As always, you can get a hold of me uh, either by email at mormonrenegade at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Getter under the handle Mormon Renegade. Also, we have a website up, and that's mormonrenegade.com, so go check that out. So today on the podcast, I've got someone who's just stellar. I've known him for a few years now. I've, I've had the privilege of having his friendship, and I just can't speak enough about him. Um, every so often in fundamentalism, you come across individuals who, who's, who has an impact that you really can't overstate. And we're going to be talking about one of those individuals today. We're going to be talking about Ogden Kraut. And I brought on Kevin, his son, to come and tell us a little bit about his dad. So Kevin, again, 
I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here. Well, I'm very grateful that you asked me to come and chat a little bit about my father and all the uh, very interesting stories about him and what happened in his life and what led him to writing so many books. Yeah, because he was he was very prolific, right? I, how many books did he actually end up writing, Kevin? Well, he wrote and compiled around 70 uh, there were other books that he was involved in and he reprinted or, or compiled other ones that he didn't say he compiled, but he put them together. So probably over a hundred books, different things that he had done. That's prolific for any author. It's even more prolific when you start looking at the amount of just raw data that he was able to compile. Cause, and, and we'll get into this a little later, but one of the things I loved about reading your dad's, um, books especially as i was a newbie coming into fundamentalism your dad had a huge impact on on me and how i did things and i've mentioned this in other podcasts and it, it was almost like your dad was really good about being like here's the information now you decide what you want to do with it he, it was very impartial in a lot of ways right here's the data here's what i found and do with it what you will well, a lot of it um, was quite interesting because dad told me that when he started out with some books, they were they were huge volumes. I mean, he had all kinds of notebooks and he'd write them in notebooks so he could take something and, you know, it was a three ring binder and then he'd take it out, and put something in and, you know, add here and there. It was cut and paste type thing back in the day. And so he ended up with, you know, big, huge volumes and then he'd go and he'd work and he'd bring it down a little bit more and compile a little bit more and bring it more. And then it, then it would end up in a little book about that big, you know? So he, and then he said he, he would go to thesaurus and try and find the layman's word for something to make it easier for people to understand it. Nothing complex, nothing really hard. And he said much to my counterpart, uh, you know, several others who, who were authors that made it more difficult to understand Talmadge one you know, he'd bring big words in that were so complex, people had to go look up the word. There was even a dictionary, a Talmadge dictionary, because, you know, he had to look so intelligent. So it was really, it took a lot of work for him to get the basics put together. And there were other deep doctrines I asked him about, and he goes, I'm just trying to get people so that they can get into the fundamentalist concepts very easily without a lot of complex, deep stuff. They can get the major things done. Right. So real quick, let's get some background. Was your dad born a fundamentalist? Okay, so my dad was born in Montana. And he, his family were Lutheran. And they had been for generations. They even claimed they came through Martin Luther King, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. (laughs) (laughs) And so... They came through that lineage, the old German lineage, and they came in, and then they were in Pennsylvania, and then their family moved to Montana. The rest of the family went to Washington. And so when he was about 16, 15, his teacher in the school handed him a Book of Mormon. And he read the Book of Mormon, and he converted, and then he converted the rest of his family. So he converted to the LDS church? Correct. Okay. And then he converted the rest of his family. Yes. So he, he gets the message. He finds out it's true. And he's like, now I got to go convert the rest of my family. 
Yeah. See, that's crazy because I, I, I converted to the LDS church before I was a fundamentalist. Right. And some of right. the, my, my, some of the biggest pushback I got was from my family, right? They wanted nothing to do with it. I think sometimes when, when they see you grow up and they see all your faults, that they're a little less likely to take you serious because they see all the stupid crap you do, right? Your dad, on the other hand, seems to Correct. have been yeah. a, of such character that his family didn't really doubt him at all. Yeah, he, he was a prolific reader. He just read a lot of books and he was fast at reading. Um, you know, uh, later in his war days when he was in the war, uh, one of the major generals came in and he and dad had all these library books of all these different war things and whatever and one was uh, uh, the, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire or something and he said well you've read all this and dad said yeah three times and the guy goes really and what is your conclusion about this and this and this and it was all exactly the same as that general was <laughs> wow. he was so impressed with my dad you know 19 year old 20 year old guy you know so, so your dad converts to the LDS church. Does he go on an LDS mission? Yes. Later on, after his conversion, then he, and he loved photography. And so he, he worked really hard to get into photography and he went down to Texas. He got a job working down in Texas uh, for some Jews that ran a huge business uh, in photography. And they were very, very good businessmen. He was doing this. And then he, as he was, uh, he was doing all that, he kept saying, well, I need to, I need to go back to Salt Lake. I, I need to go to Salt Lake because he really didn't get to go to Salt Lake and see all the stuff and everything. Go, they, well, we'll pay you double and we'll pay you more. And, you know, and he kept making all this money, but he just kept kind of feeling prompted to come to Utah. And one day, um, they were having a, uh, can't think of the term, what is it where the, they, they go back to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. And so he, they were there celebrating it and he was there and then he got all done and he says, he kind of looked at him and he goes, well, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with, with going to Salt Lake. And they went, oh, we're keeping you from a pilgrimage. Oh no, we can't do that. And so then they had kind of a pilgrimage thing for him to go back to Salt Lake City. So he goes to Salt Lake City and he meets a cousin of his who, who says, you need to go meet this gentleman named Bishop Coyle. And so then he goes down to the mine and on the way there, everybody's giving him all these things because, you know, he needed, you know, a sleeping bag and he needed this. And he went all the way there and he walks up to Bishop Coyle and Bishop Coyle looks at my dad and he goes, shakes his hand and he goes, Oh, we have been waiting for you. And and for anybody who doesn't know, Bishop Coyle was um, the bishop who had revelations about the dream mine down in um, Utah County. And we're going to do Salem. an episode. Yeah, in Salem. So we're going to be doing an episode just on the dream mine here before long. And uh, your name's on the short list for that, Kevin, because you're the one that taught me about it. So I can't think of a better guy guy to do that. But let's let's stay on your dad so he he meets bishop Coyle. now is bishop Coyle the one that kind of introduces him to fundamentalism uh well yeah let's see no. trying to think yeah he it wasn't him it was 
his cousin that he met in Salt Lake City that took him to uh, to the Dream Mine. Okay. So it was the Geertsons. Now the Geertson name was part of the Dream Mine. Joe Geertson was kind of uh, being prepped to follow Bishop Coyle afterwards, and then there was kind of a coup, and another guy got in. But uh, so he he learned a little bit of that, but uh, but then he also met Joseph Musser around that same time. Um, and so he started getting into fundamentalism, but then he met Bishop Coyle and Bishop Coyle, you know, was pretty much a fundamentalist, mm-hmm. you know, in, in his thoughts and actions and everything. And one time dad told me, he said he was asking Bishop Coyle about, um, the Adam God doctrine. And he was kind of showing him quotes and asking questions. And he kind of sat there and nodded his head and this and that. And, and then they were in a wagon. They were actually driving in a horse-drawn carriage wagon. And uh, and then they got where they were going. And, and Bishop Coyle got out of the out of the wagon to go where he was going to go. And he turned around to my dad and he said, Adam is your father and God, and don't you forget it. And then he left. And he says that was the shortest <laughs> lecture I ever had on, on Adam God. <laughs> so so he meets, meets Bishop Coyle. This is all before his mission? That's correct. And this is what happened. Dad, dad wanted, so, so he was there with Bishop Coyle. He went through all the miracles, all the foreseeing, you know, we're going to see a map of the United States today. None of them understood it. They blasted out one of the rock and there's this, you know, quartz that looks just like the United States map. And he's like, holy cow. And so all this stuff kept happening and he gets to the very end and the mind's shutting down and Coyle's very getting aged and, uh, and, and dad's still there kind of assisting and helping and he, but he wants to go on a mission and he tells Bishop Coyle that he wants to go the old style, the old way without purse script. And Coyle says, uh, he looks out the window and he's thinking and he's meditating on that. And then he comes back and he says, Stonewall, he called, he nicknamed my dad Stonewall because he was a stubborn German, you know. Right, right. And he says, and he says, uh, Stonewall, I think you might just get that wish. Hmm. And then my dad left on his mission. Coyle was kind of sad. And then Coyle died not very long after that. So where did your dad go on his mission? My dad went to Southern States mission, which is Southern Arizona and Southern California. And his mission president was Bruce R. McConkie's father, Oscar. Really? And so the day my dad gets into the mission field, he's sitting outside and one of the guys comes out, one of the other elders comes out of uh, Oscar McConkie's uh, office door and he walks out and he goes, oh no, they're going to make us go without purse's script. <laughs> which is McConkie, what your dad wanted yeah and my and mcconkie had that dream the night before my dad got there wow and then so they went he went a full two years without purser script and then the day that my dad left mcconkie had a revelation to go back to the new way wow so my, so my dad was the last full-time two-year missionary that served without purse script and it was in the 40s so real quick did your dad have any any experiences on his mission that he related to you that 
that you feel would like foreshadow what it, he he would do later in life? Yeah, he actually wrote an entire thing called Missionary Experiences. But he never foreshadowed or saw anything about, um, you know, about writing books or writing those things or doing any of that. He had no idea that that was going to come. That actually came later um, after he'd been married and, and my family had a real devastating farm burned down and burned everybody, almost killed my dad and mom. My mom was about 60 to 70% of her body, third degree wow. burned. And they gave up on her. They thought she's going to die. And then she lived. And she was the first person that actually had um, plastic surgery. Is that what they call it? Yeah, plastic. Where they take not plastic part of your, surgery. Another but, part of your skin. Uh, uh, skin oh. graft? Yeah, 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 skin grafting that actually worked. Wow. So she was one of the first ones. And she kept telling the doctors, you got to have vitamin E, you got to have vitamin E. And they put vitamin E on her. And then after that, she, she got better and, and worked. But, uh, but so anyway, that, that happened, that devastated, they were in Fruita, Colorado, Grand Junction area. He gets a job at Dugway Proving Grounds, moves here. And, uh, and then he's at Dugway. And then one night, he actually has an experience where he says that an angel he wrote it as a dream. He liked to do that. He didn't want to make it sound real fancy or some angel or whatever, but an angel came through the window as he related it to us children. And the angel stood about two or three feet above the ground and stood there with a big book, like a big Bible. And he shows it to my dad and my dad looks at it in the dream and the angel turns some of the pages so he can kind of see what, what it was. And as he's turning these pages, my dad looks at it and he's reading it and he goes, oh my gosh, that's, that's, that's kind of my style of writing. That's my, my, you know, and then he starts thinking, did I write this book? And he looks at the angel and telepathically the angel says, yes, you wrote this. You're going wow. to read this. And then and this, this, shuts, was, this was before he met your mom? No, this is after they were married. After, okay. And so he had, uh, he had four kids by then and I wasn't born yet. And so <clears throat> anyway, so he comes and shuts the book. And then he said out the window he went. And then I realized that it was showing to him the books, you know, like United Order and this and that. And he had all these subjects. And we even have one of his hands sketched, like he wrote out Enzyme to the Nations. And he wrote all this and everything and put some of the listings of the books that he was supposed to put in there where he drew that out, I guess, the day that that happened. So and, uh, so let, let, let me just make sure I'm caught up here. So he gets home from his mission. He meets his wife. Uh, they end he up actually met her on the mission. He actually oh. met her in the mission field. Really? Yeah, and then, and then he kept writing her, and then after he got off his nice. mission, he came and got her and married her. Nice. So so he they get married. They move to Dugway, and there is where he kind of receives his commission, if you will, that, Hey, this, this is your mission. This is what you're going to do. Um, does he start on it right away? He starts compiling a lot of information, you know, just ideas and things and whatever. Um, but it never really kicked into gear 
until he wrote a little pamphlet called Jesus Was Married. Okay. Which was a really hot item at that time. And he wrote this pamphlet and he'd tell me a story. He went down to, to uh, BYU because there was lots of controversy on that at the time. And he printed out 500 pamphlets and he took them to the, the uh, uh, 70s bookstore. And he said all of them sold out before he even got back to Dugway. Wow. So was he a full-blown fundamentalist by this point, Kevin? No. Or was, he was still- Well, he had met Musser. He had had all the experiences with Bishop Coyle. I mean, he knew all this material. He knew the fundamentalist concepts and the doctrines. But he's, he was still in the church and very active and started writing books uh, like the Jesus was married. He actually decided he'd write a book. So he wrote an actual book on it. And then that started selling. He wrote one on the 70s. He wrote one on uh, Christ and the crucifixion. He wrote, he wrote several books. There was about eight or nine that were being sold at Deseret Book. He outsold Bruce R. McConkie. <laughs> so, Bruce, Bruce, yeah. So, so Bruce was a little bit, you know, little, uh, you know. And my dad always was friends with Bruce and with Bruce's dad, Oscar. He always talked to Oscar, you know, till the day Oscar died. They were good right. friends. You know, going back to what you said that you know your dad had met with Musser, he had met with with uh some other you know coil that wasn't that unusual for that time period right i think today in fundamentalism we see a very stark line right which is you're either a fundamentalist or you're a member of the lds church back in those days it for, from some of the older guys i've talked to that line was a bit blurred there for a long time right i mean you could go to the lds church you could fulfill your calling uh, but if you wanted higher things Sometimes before Musser was really on the outs with the church, from my understanding is the church would refer people back to Musser if they had deep questions. And, and so the, the line between fundamentalism and LDS wasn't as stark as what we think of now. Is that kind of your understanding as well? Yes, there were a lot of LDS people, in fact, that were living plural marriage at that time. The 50s, the 60s, a lot of the fun, there was, there was a lot of this stuff going on. There was a lot of people in the upper echelon of the church that believed all the fundamentalist doctrine. I mean, Jay Golden Kimball was one of them, who Jay Golden Kimball was, life was saved by Bishop Coyle. Bishop Coyle was a young missionary in Jay Golden Kimball's, and Jay Golden Kimball was his mission president. And he told him, don't go to this meeting, President, because if you do, the, the mobs are going to kill you. And they were, they were down in the South, which hated Mormons. And so he saved his life. And so Jay Golden had stock in the Dream Mine, and a lot of different ones were. And so there was a lot of mixing in between. Uh, in fact, Joseph Musser was asked to come to the temple and here he was outside the church, but he was actually asked to come to the temple and get his second anointings. And that's and that's what I understand is that yeah. from, from doing my reading and talking to some older folks, it, it wasn't a stark line. Right. I mean, it was no, it was it was a lot. Uh, th there was a lot more gray area, so to speak, when it came right. to are you fundamentalist or are you LDS? 
And it really doesn't seem to be about until the seventies that, that, that line becomes stark and you, you know, it's one of those lines that you have to make a choice on now. Sure. Uh, in the fifties, when they brought a lot of the council and threw them in jail, that was under Heber J. Grant's era. A lot of that happened. Fundamentalists kind of got thrown in jail. There was a lot of stuff kind of starting around that time. The sixties, nothing too much went on, but in the seventies, what happened was, Remember, it was uh, after, it was Bishop Coyle was basically excommunicated by uh, Marky Peterson. Right. Marky Peterson's what put the pressure on him. And then because dad had association with the dream mine and Bishop Coyle, then now Marky Peterson started coming after dad. In fact, one time they came, the, he called, Marky Peterson called uh, President Johnson out in Grantsville and said, you need to excommunicate Ogden Kraut and he goes, why? He's one of my best guys in the state. He knows more than any of us. How would I, why would I do that? And he says, oh, because he wrote that Jesus was married book. And he goes, well, okay, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'll, whatever. And so he hung up the phone. Then he called, and then Johnson called my dad right away and says, now guess what Marky Peterson's after? And he goes, what? And he says, he's mad because you wrote that book, Jesus was married. And my dad said, well, you tell Mark Peterson that I went up to the president of the church, Joseph Fielding Smith, and showed him my manuscript before I ever completed Jesus Was Married. And he said, yeah, the story is right there. The marriage in Canaan, that was Jesus. That was his experience. He goes, yeah, that was great, Ogden, but maybe you could call it, uh, was Jesus married or maybe Jesus is married? And my dad said, well, was he or wasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and so Joseph Fielding goes, well, all right, go ahead. There it is. And so I got approval from him, who's the higher ranking officer here. Sorry, you know. Uh, and so anyway, so the state president called back Mark Peterson and Mark was really upset. But uh, so he just found him on some other grounds and excommunicating. So Mark Peterson was kind of the hatchet man. And he was kind of out getting everybody that he could that had fundamentalist leanings around that time. So does your dad become, oh, I, I don't know what the correct verbiage would be. Would he become like a full-blown fundamentalist before or after his excommunication? I think he was before. Is, is, is there a time you can think back on to, to like where you can, is, is there an experience you had with him when you were a kid, when maybe he was still in the church where you could be like, yeah, he was a fundamentalist back then? Well, I know that he believed all the fundamentalist teachings i didn't know much about him and his beliefs on plural marriage you know i knew he believed it and this kind of thing a lot of the plural marriage happened after his excommunication and there might have been some before that um, okay. we don't know but yeah he always went to fundamentalist houses and there were a lot of fundamentalists that came and they had two or three wives and he visited with them and and uh but see you know i was eight years old and my dad baptized me in grantsville and and you know and it was a grand experience to me it was a beautiful experience come up out of the water i'm prophesying i'm seeing things and you know my brother's gonna do this my sister's gonna do this and i don't know you know i don't even remember the experience too well i remember some of that but my sister uh she recorded all that experience 
so if my dad didn't have any priesthood or there was this and that, I mean, you know, there was some real effects, effectiveness to that baptism. And then it was probably only three or four months later that my dad was excommunicated. Okay. All right. So do you remember his excommunication? Do I do very well. What, yeah. what happened there? Well, ironically, he didn't go to the excommunication. He just figured it was a kangaroo court and that was all that was going to happen. And, and so they'd already announced to him that what's going to happen. And President Johnson told him, well, be ready because they're, they finally got you and that kind of stuff. And so he didn't, he didn't go, but I remember how quickly and viciously people in the ward turned against my father. I mean, and my dad knew more than any of those people. I guarantee you there wasn't one other person that had the scholarship my dad did. And, uh, and I remember one of the neighbors right next to us across the street, you know, he came over and told my mom in front of me, he's going to be a son of perdition. He's going to go that far. Oh, geez. You know, oh, yeah, it was all this horrible stuff. And, uh, and then I, I got treated pretty bad. And uh, there was some real... There, there were kids at Dugway that beat me up because my dad was also a well-known figure to, you know, and fundamentalist after that, you know, within two, three years, people were, there was the John Singer situation happening where the guy got shot in the back for homeschooling. Uh, he was, he was very well on uh, the news. Anytime situations happened with fundamentalists, they had, they, you know, he was a common individual. If there were problems in court, uh, he was considered a professional witness, so he'd come in and explain to the court why this and this and why they believe that. It wasn't long after that that uh, Rulin Allred got killed, right? Mm -hmm. And so that made headline news, you know, and so all that was all all in the news, all in things. And uh, and I remember a bunch of the, the, uh, the deacons uh, and teachers that came and beat me up because my dad was a polygamist. And uh, pretty hard, actually. I was a pretty big kid. I pretty much defended myself till all of them got on me. And, and uh, they beat me all up. And then, uh, and then I went past the sacrament with a black eye and everything, you know, just in spite of them. <laughs> right. So wh what was the relationship between you and your dad like during that time? Did you, like, ever blame your dad for any of that stuff or... Well, I didn't. I always kind of saw a different view than my mother did. Like one time after that, you know, she came in and she says, well, your dad wants to give you a blessing because I was very sick as a kid mm -hmm. and probably Dugway and all its, uh, you know, contaminants. But anyway, I was sitting on the couch and he came in and gave me a blessing. And I got better right away. And she had told me, oh, since he's not a member of the church, you know, that it probably won't work just so you understand, you know, and and then it worked. And then I was really confused. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? But then growing up with my mother, uh, she, she started having a real hatred towards plural marriage and, uh, you know, Ann Wilde and her didn't get along too great. And there were some issues going on there that it kind of stagnated a lot of my feelings, you know, towards, uh, towards the church. There was some, you know, after seeing how they treated my dad after they did this and my dad and I, my dad was a very personable person. He, uh, people, people liked him on either side. It didn't matter. I had a lady once that 
oh, if he hadn't got into that polygamy, but we just loved your dad. He was so fun. He did this. And, you know, just that's how people were. They, they felt that type of personality. So at, at what point does, does your dad become polygamist? At what point does he take uh, another wife on? That I don't and can't tell you. I know the second wife was Ann Wilde. Um, I don't know the exact date on that. They've kind of kept that a little bit private. Sure. I'm assuming it may have been a year or two earlier. I'm not sure. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay, so he's a practicing uh, polygamist. He's been excommunicated. You bear the brunt of some of that. When does he really start getting his his sources together? And where is he finding his sources uh, for his his books? Okay, so the one unique thing about my dad and Bruce R. McConkie and Hugh Nibley and uh, a few others that I met, they all had photographic memories. And so my dad, having all the people that told him, well, you need to read this book or read the Journal of Discourses or read this or contribute or all these different ones. And then he kind of made friends with some of the guys at the uh, at the archives. And so he got into some of the archival stuff that other people didn't get into. And dad did favors for the archivist. They had they said, we can't find this book or we can't find this. And dad Dad used some of his influence through the military or people or power or whatever, because he worked for the government at Dugway and he was one of the, I didn't know this, but he was one of the highest, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, levels of uh, civilian uh, contractor. Well, he was a civilian contractor, but he, uh, there's a pass like if you security or it's the highest security level security um, clearance a, yeah okay. so he had one of the highest security clearances in the government and and there's a word for it but i can't think of it right now but anyway a cia guy i met one time he told me he said well he must have been a photographer and i said well as a matter of fact he was and he said well that's the difference because if he was a very trusted photographer then he had to have been uh had a high clearance that's the name clearance. okay so he had one of the highest clearances and he said because you know a guy walks out and says hey i saw this little alien and they had this eyes and they were green and you know and people go oh that's interesting is he making that up but you know a photographer he can go hey look here's the little alien and here's a picture right. of this alien you know and back then they didn't have photoshop you know so that was pretty pretty important stuff and so my dad, even to the day he died, I tried to pull stuff out of him. You know, what about this? And what about that government thing? And he said, son, you, I know you're trying really hard. And I know you want me to tell, but unless it's, uh, unless it's been brought in the open or in the news or whatever, or declassified, I can't tell you. And I won't tell you. And Joseph Smith could keep a secret till doomsday. And so can I. <laughs> nice. So he was a man of his word, just he period. Yep. Yeah. So at, you talk about him getting noticed a lot, right? That that the media seems to come to him for quest for answers. Anytime something happens of significance within the realm of, of fundamentalism, what was it that, that drew all those folks to him? 
It had to be his personality. And what was his and, personality and I, like? Well, I think he, he was very funny. You know, he, he was charismatic. Um, he was very non-judgmental. You know, uh, I got a lot of my mother who's pretty, you know, Irish and stubborn and, you know, all that. And, but, but he was, um, yeah, and a lot of people sent their people to him because he was able to kind of visit with people. And they, I watched him and people would come in and they'd start talking about aliens and this and that and whatever. And he'd kind of nod and say, oh, that's interesting. That's what she wouldn't argue with them or wouldn't anything. And he just. And then they leave and I said, come on, dad, you don't believe in all that. I know, you know, what about this? And what about that? And he goes, well, there's a little bit of proof of that and a little bit of proof of this. And, and, you know, and he says, that's okay. They're sharing their view. I'm quite happy to hear their view, you know? And, and so he was, that was kind of his uh, personality. Like for instance, he wasn't really, he, he would hide behind certain things, but he was very, very stubborn about other things. Like for instance, one of the FBI agents, when uh, the one of the LDS churches got blew up, it was one of the senior gang at the very end. They were mad about the government and the church, and they went and blew up one of the churches. I don't know if you ever heard about that story. I, I never heard that. No. So so they blow up the church, and and they and now they're hiding out, and the government's trying to come get them, and they're worried because there's going to be a standoff. They got lots of guns, and and the police are you know, surrounding and they've taken shots or they're threatening. And so there was all this worry. And so the FBI, they go to all the fundamentalist people they can. And they say, well, we need somebody to be a liaison, be, you know, or, or an agent to go and talk to these people. We need some, some sort of negotiation to happen here. And, and the FBI agent came to my dad and my dad kept trying to send him off to go somewhere else. And he says, they finally said, Ogden, every single person said your name there is nobody else that, that they feel could go and negotiate this and so my dad said oh okay so he's driving down the road and and uh um and so this fbi agent says you know we uh we've been doing some research and found out that uh you have a second wife you have two wives and, and dad goes well that's not correct and he goes, oh, no, no, you see, we, we have all this proof, and we have this, and da, 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 and we even think we know who she is, and we know you have two wives. And my dad said, no, that's not correct. I have five wives. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the FBI agent just, you know, was totally, you know, not even expected. He just starts laughing like you did, and then and then after that, the FBI guy liked my dad. They were they were just buddies, you know. Do you think one of the other reasons your dad was maybe so trusted and respected was is because he didn't necessarily join a group? Correct. Yeah, that that was the one thing that that no matter who I've talked to, uh, some of the old timers all mentioned your dad as as someone they would talk to, and. Typically within fundamentalism, I've known there's, there's kind of like two camps, right? One camp is you're completely independent. The other camp is, is that you belong to a group, right? Now, if you belong to a group, there's not a lot of cross conversation from one group to another. Correct. Um, 
and and your dad always seemed to be kind of from from everything I could gather, kind of be above that fray because he didn't really have a dog in the fight, so to speak, about who was the man with the keys, so to speak. And and so you seem to think that that played in pretty heavily to everybody feeling comfortable talking to Ogden is the fact that, you know, Ogden, Ogden doesn't have a dog in this fight, so to speak. Yeah. And I think he was, um, you know, they had said back in the old days, uh, Bishop Coyle, I found this out later, Bishop Coyle had also kind of prophetically seen what was going to happen in some of the groups. And he said, be very careful of some of the groups that are rising up in the last days. Be very careful. Didn't say not join them or this or that, but just be very careful. And right. so dad was a little bit nervous of some of the groups. Uh, he'd already been threatened by uh, Erval LeBaron. That was another one. He was on Erval's death list like Ruin was. And anybody that didn't come join Erval and comply with everything he said was, you know, he was going to try and take him out and kill him. Right. What was your dad's impression of, of, uh, of Ruin? Uh, very high. Yeah. He had a high respect for Ruin. Um, he many times dad, he, dad, see, Ruin was set apart by Joseph Musser almost mm -hmm. the same time my dad was. Okay. And Ruin's mission was as a, as a high priest apostle, to perform and do this, these ordinances and, you know, take care of certain things. That was, that was his duty. And when my dad was set apart, he was set apart as a 70 apostle. And he said in the prayer to preach the gospel far and wide. Okay. So there, mm -hmm. there was something else that pointed to your dad's ministry, so to speak. Correct. And that was Musser that pretty much foretold that before my dad ever had the mission with the angel or any of that that came later. Okay. All right. So he'd, act, he'd actually gotten priesthood from Musser and been set apart before he went on his mission. Gotcha. Gotcha. What kind of steps did your dad take when he was fact-checking documents? That's something else I've always, always respected a lot is that his sources always seem to be impeccable. What, what was he doing as far as fact-checking when he was going in and diving deep into those old documents? Well, from what I remember, um, you know, like I talked about the notebooks. Mm -hmm. So let's say dad would be studying something like Adam God. So he would go and get all the references that he could. And then, and then he, didn't, he didn't just kind of write down the reference or any of that. He had a little spy camera and he would that he got from the government and so he would actually take pictures of the document and then he would you know take a photo of it and then on an eight and a half by eleven photo paper and then he'd three hole punch it and stick it in the notebook so he had a lot of that information so he was using all his knowledge that he had um, back in the day to do all this stuff Sorry. so Sorry. And oh, so, so he, uh, and then of course he would go to the archives. He would ask them a lot of times there were issues that happened. Um, like for instance, there was a first presidency vault that didn't exist, you know, and the church never claimed that it was there. Right. And uh, dad knew that there was a couple of references in there. 
but he couldn't get to them. And one of them was uh, uh, in the John Taylor papers or the diary of John Taylor. So he got a hold of Samuel Taylor, who was John John W. Taylor's son, who wrote Flubber and other movies for uh, Walt Disney. Right. And so one day Samuel calls Salt Lake City and he calls the First Presidency and they're all at conference getting ready for conference and the secretary answers the phone and he says, can you do me a favor? He says, go back in the First Presidency's vault and on the right hand side is my grandfather John Taylor's diary and in there about page 53 there's it says that it's something like this and if you can just tell me if it was this phrase or this phrase that would help me out and she goes oh okay and she goes back in and gives it comes back out and she says well it was on the left side not on the right side but um but it, <laughs> here it is right here page 53 and it reads like this and she read it off and it was just what my dad had and then she goes okay, anything else? And he goes, well, what about this page? Was there something else in here? And so she gets all these checked out by her. And then she closes it up and takes it back into the first presidency vault that doesn't exist. And, uh, and my dad, you know, got that information from Sam and they were both laughing forever. <laughs> right. So, so that's, fact. that's some of his techniques that he used to check facts. So, Another question I've always had about your dad is because he was so knowledgeable about the gospel, he had seen a lot of firsthand documents. Because of the very nature of people, and especially Mormons, right? Because we are a very, um, we're people who love hierarchy, right? Because that's kind of the way the gospel was first introduced, right? You have a first presidency, a quorum of the twelfth. I imagine that he must have gotten some sort of push, I guess, from from some some people to you should really start a church or you should really do X, Y and Z and be a leader. How was it your dad was able to fend that off for so long? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know exactly how that was. I just know that he was very stubborn and stonewall and he felt like the early brethren in the fundamentalist movement said, you know, to not get into a group. And, uh, and he said that they would have to be like a lone wolf in the wilderness. You did each one have to stand like a tub on its own bottom. And so there was a lot of that kind of thing that was told in the beginning. And, uh, and dad never felt like it was his commission to start a group or, or any of that his big push was to get these books done an angel commissioned him and he felt inspired to spread the gospel far and wide and that's the best way that he felt he could do that so he just um, really stayed focused on his mission correct and he, he had a lot of people a lot of people came later even after the funeral and said man i'd have joined his group i would have done this i'd have done that and and dad the other problem is dad felt that it was a little higher level it's diff more difficult to be on your own. Uh, um, and so a lot of people would come out of the church. They'd join the all red group. There'd be dissatisfaction with them or something. And then they would, they'd come to dad and then he'd become an independent. And he'd say, well, now you've arrived. Now you're there. You don't need the crutch. You don't need the, 
the help of these other brethren to do this, you know, because you're like a, a prophet in the wilderness eating your locust and honey, you know, type thing. You're on your own. But he also said that not many people can do that. Not many people, you know, could go and, uh, and be on their own and do their own thing. And, and, and you know, he's a very independent type personality. But also I remember dad, a, a person coming in one day and saying, I just felt the spirit really strongly tell me to go join the all red group. And I, and I felt very impressed to do so. And dad would say, then that's what you should do. You know, go do that. You don't, you don't know the reasons why, you know, it might be because your wife is there. Dad met one of his wives at an all red meeting. And he said he wasn't going to go that day. And he just got up and went and took Ann and, and this gal walks up to my dad and starts talking to him. And that's, that's the third wife that ended up having more children. And, uh, and, and they met at the all red group. And so, so I even tell people, you, you know, well, should I do this or should I do that? And I go, I'm not here to make your decision. You know, well, find me a wife, you know, that's not my job. That's your job. Right. <laughs> you, know, you go, you go do that. I can help or whatever, but you know, ultimately that's between you and, and heavenly father and what he wants you to do. And, and a lot of this is stepping up the ladders and learning and progressing. And so a lot, like I have a lot of friends who, um, you know, they, they, they would go through groups. So they'd go to the church and then they'd read my dad's books and then they're off on something more deeper because, you know, dad's books are kind of what he said was the beginning of the, the deeper gospel. There's definitely more deeper philosophies and deeper things that dad didn't write about. And, uh, and so, so it was pretty much from what my view was, it was very difficult for dad to tell people he wasn't starting a group, but he tried to assist people to be where they needed to be. Very much a facilitator in that regard. Very so. much. Yeah. So a kind of a compiler of knowledge and then, then a facilitator, someone say, Hey, sure. you know, you, you feel strongly about this go here but understand x y or z and that sort of thing well and he he brought a lot of people to the all red group i mean you know in the beginning he well one of them and this has been verified several different ways but one time it was a general authority that wanted to get a second wife here he is up in the hierarchy of the church and what year uh, okay hold, hold on i'm gonna ask some questions about this what year would this have been kevin Okay, so I, I'm assuming it would have been after he was excommunicated, so that would have been in the 70s. Okay, so do we have any idea who this general authority was? I asked Dad, and he said it, it's sworn secrecy. I'm not going to tell that. So, so here's but here's the interesting thing, because I so he went he rebaptized him, taught him all this stuff, got him all prepped. He and his Two wives came to Rulin. They and my dad introduced them to Rulin, and Rulin uh, was right there. Rulin brought in a couple of witnesses. One was a woman, and uh, and I talked to her, and she was she verified that I was there when that happened. I wow. was there when that happened, and I asked her, "Oh, well, who was the general authority?" And she kind of laughed, and she goes, "Oh, of course, I'm not going to tell you that." 
And so, uh, so she at least verified that that was a real thing. And, uh, and so Rulin did this, but then later Owen kind of had to have council approval and they had to join their group and they had to pay tithing and they had to do this and all that. And, and dad and Rulin definitely felt that, you know, cause dad would bring them and they'd be baptized and, and then he'd, he'd bring them to the higher orders or higher priesthood functions that, that Rulin was doing. That was his, his job to do so. A 70 could actually do those things, but it wasn't, that didn't feel it was his calling to do those ceilings or other things or whatever, but he, but he had the authority could, you know, 70 was allowed to basically build up an entire stake if need be and, and call a high council and all of that. Right. So your dad never did any ordinances or anything like that for anyone else? Later, later when there were issues with Owen and Owen said, well, I can't, I can't because my council won't let me or something to that effect. And dad said, well, then I'll do them, you know, and I'll keep record. Wow. What was that like for your dad to have to make that transition out of what he felt was like really his calling as, as a, as a missionary and as a, you know, a compiler of history? did that weigh on him when he when he realized he was going to have to start doing some of those things very upsetting was it did he say anything to you about it i was on the phone when he was talking to owen about it really and he said oh and this is just not the way it's not the way rulin did this you know that's not how rulin did this and and you know and then dad made a statement he says now does that mean that your counsel is ruling over you or you rule over the council right and he didn't really say much so i don't know what was going on with owen at that time it had to have been kind of sad to watch your dad have to go through that right because from all accounts ruin was just an amazing individual a great priesthood holder um very loved by his people and just about all people so he sees the AUB, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, at this time, the AUB doesn't necessarily consider themselves a church, more as an auxiliary to the mother church, correct? And they're very much saying that the church is out of order, we're not the church, we're not the ones, we're just waiting for it to be set in order. Right, so they are, they, they kind of think, and, and is, is this a correct assessment, they kind of thought of themselves as like an auxiliary of the church, would that be correct? Kind of like the people who were thrown out in the time of the Ramiumptum. Okay. Then Alma came and, you know, well, you can still worship and, you know, you can still do this without a church or without this. It was about the same as that. Gotcha. Anyway, your dad sees all this kind of happening. It must have been sad for him on some level to watch it kind of fall into disrepair, wasn't it? Very. I watched my dad go through a lot of heartache. The, the very last part of my dad's life, it, it seemed like it was all disappointment. He was sad about the church. He was sad about the fundamentalist people. A lot of them had done crazy stuff and gone off track. And he just felt like the whole world had gone to pot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about some specifics now, because again, your dad saw a lot of fundamentalist history, right? I mean, he he meets bishop coil he um he meets musser he knows ruin 
all red. Um, so he's alive during like the short Creek raids and whatnot. Yes. Did he, did he ever say anything to you about the FLDS going off the rails? Do you remember any of that? Yes. Oh yes. Well, there were several experiences. One, uh, one was quite unique. Um, and it was the centennial. Remember the centennial group broke off, right? Yep. Okay. So when the centennial group broke off, what's interesting about that was they had come as many had many of the leaders of the groups came to my dad wanting him to be a part of their group. Right. And, and the group down in, in uh, Colorado city had come to my father before the centennial breakup and said, we want you to be, you know, our right-hand man or one of the guys there. And, you know, we'll give you this money and we'll do this. And they had quite an enticing, you know, program. And my dad said, you know, some of those guys down there, they can get pretty radical. Stories have been that some people have been buried in the desert. In other words, they've taken them out. And right. so my dad said, I was a little nervous of all that. And I, so I had to word everything just perfect and, you know, all this. And he said, and so dad, uh, he says, now, why would I go to just your group? Um, well, we hold all the keys, you know, we're the only ones to hold all the keys. And dad kind of looked at him funny and he goes, well, I don't believe that. And here, here's a revelation. And he pulled out, I think it was the 82 revelation or one of those where, uh he goes to the lord and says you know who holds all these keys and the lord says all of you hold these all 12 of you hold these keys in common however there's one who is a spokesman and so dad said well there might be a spokesman there but all it's kind of a spread out thing it's not like just the one and only and that kind of made him a little upset and so they left they didn't really know much about scripture and thing and so then they went down and my dad thought hmm i haven't heard from them i wonder if they're going to come get me or how that went and so um so they went down or he called one of his buddies down there he called him one of his spies <laughs> and he so he called him and he says so what all happened down there with all this i haven't heard anything i don't know oh good oh my gosh, was you the one that brought up that revelation? And my dad said, sure. And so he said the leader the next day in church, because that was on a Saturday, my dad talked to him about that. And the next Sunday, he got up in church and said, well, this was, I think it was John Tater. Could have been, who was it? Anyway, John Tater uh, got this revelation. and And right here, where John Taylor's getting this, it's all true. But then when he gets to this part about, um, you know, where they're all in common and there's not just one prophet uh, that holds all the keys and does everything, uh, that was the devil took over that revelation. So part of the revelation was from God and part of the revelation was from the devil. And that man said that half of the people in that congregation right then actually stood up and walked out of the meeting wow 
And that's what started the Centennial Group. Really? That's where they said, we're done. This is it. That's just final. If he's saying that, that's just bull crap. We're finished. We're out of here. And they left. And that was the breakup. And I met a lady. She's now passed away. Was it Donna Mackert? Yeah, Donna Mackert had actually told me she was in the meeting and heard that happen. And I've talked to several other people and they say, oh, yeah, we remember that. We remember that whole meeting very crystal clear. So he really did say that part of it was from God. Part of it was from the devil. And and your dad, by bringing that revelation up, really was the catalyst for the Centennial Park Group to break off and start doing their own thing. Yeah, that was definitely the straw that broke the camel's back. It wow. was just like, that's just too much. We've had it. I think they were kind of planning to get up and get out of there at some point anyway. Gotcha. But that was just kind of the final straw there. Yep. And they were like, that's it. We're done. That's yep. interesting. So that, that brings me to another question. How did your dad view claims on priesthood authority and priesthood lineage, right? Um, because you got several lines out there so to speak you got a line that comes through the lds church you got a line that you know goes through musser and all red then you have a line that comes and and let me back up that that musser all red line goes back to the woolies and the and the eight hour meeting with john taylor and then you have the libaronites they have a line how did your dad view those was there a line of priesthood authority where he questioned it all or was he pretty much like yeah they're all kind of valid well, I think he felt that those priesthood lines were pretty valid all the way through. Um, however, dad was one of the ones that brought up or the actual change in priesthood ordination. Remember the time, you know, right. in the 20s or whatever, dad kind of found that out and got some history on that because that was told to him by Joseph Fielding Smith. Just, now, Joseph, let, Joseph, let me stop you there real quick because... This is something that I think is worth diving into. I know what you're talking about, but why don't you explain exactly what you mean by change in ordination? Okay, so there was a point where at one, one time they did not ordain people to the priesthood. They just called them to a calling. You are a teacher. You are a priest. You are this. So they never laid their hands on them and gave them priesthood. And so how dad kind of found out a little bit of that was because he was talking to Joseph Fielding Smith and he brought this up and, and Joseph Fielding said, yeah, I caught on to that. And several of the other early brethren did, and we've been trying to correct that. And so what they did to try and correct that was they went into all the priesthood meetings and they said, we're going to teach everybody here how to ordain somebody to the priesthood. <clears throat> and so we're going to come in and we're going to sit down and we're going to uh, confirm and we're going to practice that and make sure that that's done correctly. And so he comes along and he says um, that that they got in and they sat down and they had this priesthood holder who they knew actually had valid priesthood. And since he had valid priesthood, he was an old man and he knew what was going on. He would come in and actually or, ordain them to the priesthood and get it done. And so that's how that, that whole thing started to happen. 
No, so they, they were conferring the priesthood. They were giving them priesthood rather than just calling them to an office. Right. And and so, so, so by the time we're done and the old man's teaching them and then, okay, now that I've conferred the priesthood on you, now you practice on this guy. And then after he's done, he's going to practice on this guy and he's going to practice on that. So they tried to correct that the best that they could. And that's, and this brings to prophecy of what John Tater said, because he said many people in the last days would think that they held priesthood and did not and would not. Right. And it, it's my from from what I've read is that they were just basically like you were saying, they were ordaining straight to an office. They weren't conferring the priesthood. Right. And so what 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 you had is you had essentially, I believe it was don't quote me i'll have to go back and look at my sources but i want to say it was from like 27 to 53 is they they weren't they weren't conferring the priesthood they were just ordaining to an office and i know that there were some steps where they tried to correct it but from from everything i saw and your you or your dad could probably speak to this better than i could um it's my understanding that there was just no way to clean it all up correct that, that there there's most likely a at least a good chunk of the LDS church who's you know you you might have temple workers today in the LDS temples that don't have priesthood proper priesthood authority to be officiating in those ordinances or any ordinances below that really right that's why they brought in some of the old men that had got the priesthood way back in the day and had them start conferring. But yeah, how would you get, I mean, what if, uh, you know, a guy was inactive during that time when they were conferring all that and, and it only happened for a month or two, you know, and so they're, you know, did they really get everybody? Did it? Yeah. Very yeah. much questionable authority. And there's several priesthood lines. I mean, the LeBaron line, you know, dad, dad believed the LeBaron line was a legit, you know, it came through Joseph, through John uh, Johnson and came down through others and of course, he felt stronger concerning the muster line and and uh, and where he he and Rulin had been called around the same time. He definitely felt that it came through the priesthood lineage. And so, yeah, and, and that did preach about another priesthood that wasn't a conferral priesthood. It was definitely a lineage priesthood that just came because of your lineage. And uh, and proof of that would be in the uh in doctrine and covenants 20 where it talks about uh if you're if you want to be a bishop and you come through this you know aaronite line that you can come and say you show your lineage and you say i want to be a bishop you can be a bishop right because you would be part of the levitical order levitical order yes okay all right so but by and large he didn't have too many issues with someone saying well i think my line is valid he would more than likely say yeah probably i mean if i'm understanding it correctly yes and he, he would always tell people go and ask the lord if you still hold priesthood because there's still another way you can lose priesthood you know certain sins certain things of course <laughs> this is the question with a lot of uh he would talk about some of the uh forcing and some of the things that happened in because you know in, in section 121 it talks about if a man uh how is it forces a man uh, another man or uh, right 
by the very nature, every man, you know, if they started exhorting power, authority over another man, they can lose priesthood. That's amen to the priesthood of that man. I'm sorry, I can't quote that. But. No, you're good. Yeah. The priesthood could only be, you know, wielded on principles of Maybe, you know, love right, and righteousness and yep yep so it may be conferred on but you know it may lose it and so some people uh, that's another thing you could get priesthood reconfirmed on you and that's and that's another ordinance in wilford woodruff's journal he said that every ordinance can be redone rebaptism remarriage reconferral of priesthood you can you can do them all over again if you don't feel that it's valid if you feel that there could be an issue or there could be something else and uh and in fact the catholic church there's just a remnant of their thing where they actually would go and uh they'd go and and get remarried you know taking their vows again and it's just basically a remarriage you know so sometimes remarriages needed to be done you know or felt that they needed to be done so right so at what point do you start diving into your father's work with him? Was there a moment at which he said, Kevin, I need your help. Would you come give me a hand? So uh, I grew up in the LDS church. Uh, my mother pretty much brainwashed me against all fundamentalism. I hated polygamy more than any other human being on earth. <laughs> you know, <laughs> from, from what I, I could gather. And then uh, my, I moved up here. I had an inspiration to move up here and go to BYU, and then I got to BYU, and then everything went to mess, and so I went to UVU, and that's where I met my first wife, Bev, that day, and uh, and so then uh, I kind of conversed with my dad. I got to know him again. My parents had separated when I was about 14, so it's been about 10 years. I finally get back and meet my dad again, and we we were very much alike. We liked the same type of things. We, you know, we just kind of connected all the way through. I, I have brothers that were jealous. Oh, dad always did things with you. And I said, is that how it went? Or did I do things with dad because of what I liked, you know? And so, you know, there, we had a lot in common. Um, and so anyway, I was 25 years old and just barely getting to know my father again and having a blast we're just learning stuff and i'm reading researching and questions that i had asked all through people and everything my dad was answering those questions but just a little bit here and there but the big one was my dad had a heart attack and he went to the university of utah and and he had one vein that fed his heart and that vein had closed up and so they were trying to do some new things. They tried some, some uh, angioplasts, which I was a paramedic, you know, down in Tucson. I went, nah, those things hardly ever work. But I did know that down near Tucson, Tucson Medical Center had been putting these new things called stents. And I talked to them about it and they said, well, we can't get him down there. And I said, I'll drive him. Well, he needs to have medical assistance. Says, I'm a paramedic. What more do you need? I mean, you know, I'll take oxygen tanks. I'll do this. I'll, you know, I can resuscitate him. I've done this. Oh, really? Okay, let's do that. And so, so they, they actually paid for this medical treatment down in Phoenix to be done. So it was experimental on my dad because that was, they could prove because it's just one vein 
And if it did work or didn't work, that would, you know, there's only one way in and out. So it's not like two or three other veins they, they have to cover. And so they did that and it worked very good. And then on the way down, I'm asking my dad every question there was. I mean, I just nailed him on all the stuff for my mission and everything. And, and, and he answers them all and brings them all through. And then we get there. And then uh, I ask him just before he goes in for the operation, do I have any other brothers and sisters I don't know about? And he says, yes, you do. And I'm like, how come you had to tell me? You never ask. <laughs> like, oh, thanks. You know, so, so I find out about uh, two sisters and a brother, half brothers and sisters. And so we go in, he goes in the operation, it's successful. We go back to Pima, where I'm from, and my mom's talking to me, and I am a converted fundamentalist in one day. It was I'm that trip. It was I, that trip. Yeah. I, I can prove everything now. I'm, you know, my mom was madder than hopscotch because now I'm on dad's side, you know? And so anyway, and it was, she was kind of heartbroken, but I said, mom, it's true. Now I'm certain that this and this, what you say is correct. Now you also understand my mother. My mother was very spiritual and very in tune to things. And he took my mom to Rulan and, and met all these people and trying to, you know, kind of talker in fundamentalist, you know, way or polygamy or whatever. And she didn't really have any problems per se with uh, polygamy as much as her and Anne clashed. Uh, and so the second wife didn't, they didn't see eye to eye, you know, and so there was some issues there. And, and so, but she did kind of get to hate polygamy and all this, even though her, her grandfather uh, was a state president, the first state president in Arizona, and he had to live plural marriage in order to be a state president. And so he, he, but they had problems in that relationship. There were some problems. That's kind of brought down through uh, the family of how he may not have treated them equally or there may have been some issues. And so anyway, so my mom, she goes and prays and asks, should I join the fundamentalist movement or should I stay in the church? And she gets a very powerful stay in the church. And so she stays in the church. She raises all us kids in the church. We all go on missions. Fantastic stories of conversion by us children, even myself, almost converting the king of India, you know, and that because of that experience, allowing people to go because of his influence, he allowed uh, missionaries in. And so there's a lot of stuff that wouldn't have happened had we not been in the church. We needed to be there. So that's why I say this is such an individual thing. You have to ask God, is this what you need to do? I know lots of fundamentalist people. Uh, one, he'd actually, you know, pretty much knows more about fundamentalism, me, you, and maybe not even as much as my dad, but close to it. And he was, he had an angel come to him and tell him, to go back in the church and he goes i'm not going back in there i'm not you know and he's mad you know because the way the church treats some of us and and the angel says no you need to go back and so you need to teach my people you need to teach these people so he goes back in the church and and uh and he uh there's that one temple recommend interview question about you know fundamentalist ties or people that are you know right. remember how it's worded and 
And he says, well, I'm not answering that stupid question, you know, in that interview. And, and the Lord says, I'll take care of that. Don't worry about that. And he said, so he told me one time, he says, every time it gets to that question, knock on the door, phone call comes, something happens. And then the guy comes back and looks and he goes, okay, we're all done. So it always gets skipped, that question. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So you're able to spend that that time with your dad on the way to Arizona where it sounds like your dad just really answers every question you got. Right. And, and by the end of that trip, you're a fundamentalist, right? You're, you're, you're like, okay, now I see you, you, yep. you had light knowledge passed on to you. So when you guys get back to Utah, do you immediately go to work with your dad and helping him do his, his stuff? Yeah, we started kind of working together and doing things at that time. And uh, I said, gee, dad, what if they throw me out? And he says, then it happens, but it'll it'll come in the Lord's time. I mean, my dad knew all this fundamentalist stuff. And he says, you know, I had five kids. I, I knew all this before I, you know, went on a mission. And look at all the good that I did and all the people I influenced in the church. And I wrote all the books and I did all these things. and." And he said, and then finally, it's just like the Lord's timing was, okay, it's now's the time. And he said, he got excommunicated. He went home and he cried because the church was everything to my father. And he's upset. And the Lord's kind of like just comforting him. He says, you know, you have other work to do. And then my dad looked up on a shelf and there was a manuscript that he had there on Adam God. And if he'd been in the church, he'd never been able to write that. And it had been sitting there forever. So he pulls that down off the shelf and he starts writing the Adam God doctrine book. Wow. So he says, so there's your timing. And so, yeah, I stayed in the church for many, many years until recent. And how long did you work with your dad before he passed, Kevin? So we were working together, doing books, doing things. Um, He died in 2002 and it was... 83 85 87 89 91 so it was 92 about 92 93 so it was close to about 10 years yeah what are what are some things that surprised you as you worked with your dad as you saw him work as you saw him do what it is he did what were some of the things that surprised you about the whole process I think the inspiration was number one. Dad would be working on a project and people would just, he goes, I'm writing a book on this and this. And people would just walk in the door and say, here, Ogden, I have this book. I don't know why I was told to bring you this book, you know, or I, you know, Hey, I know where you can find that. And, you know, it's George's friend who knew Benny, who knew this, who knew that, that, you know, and this stuff would just come in waves. And, and, uh, and even one time, I went up to his office on 72nd South in, in Murray area there. And I kind of hung out. We were late. And so I didn't want to drive an hour home. And so he says, here, let me just pump up this air mattress. You can just sleep on the, on my office floor. And he slept on a couch or a sofa in there in his printing area. And so, uh, and so he says, don't be, don't be alarmed if I wake up and come in and type on my computer because you know sometimes in the middle of the night i get some real inspiration i want to come in and write it down you know and uh i says okay 
And so, uh, so in the middle of the night, he comes in, kind of stumbles on me and wakes me up a little bit. And I go back to sleep and he's sitting there typing and he gets all done the next morning. I wake him up and I says, well, what did you write last night? And he goes, I didn't wake up. And I go, yes, you did. You woke up, you came in. Said, no, I didn't. I didn't get, no, no, you did. I swear you came in. No, you must be dreaming. You're a dreamer. You dream all the time. Okay, let's go look. And so we got on this computer and opened it up. And here's this whole discourse. And my, read, my dad read it. As it says, he's a super fast reader. He read this and he goes, oh my gosh, that's about one of the best discourses I've ever done. And he looks at it and he goes, that definitely came by the Lord. I can't even remember it. Wow. And it sounds like it was a pretty rare, pretty frequent occurrence that that kind of inspiration would happen for him, right? He had a lot of that. Um, you know, when he wrote his Sears and Searstones book, it's kind of an interesting story. He went up, he went up to uh, a bank. I think it was Zion's Bank, just south of the temple there. And there was somebody that had a seer stone. And so he wanted to take a picture of the seer stone because he was compiling this book on seer stones. And so he goes in and he um, and he talks to the banker and the banker says, well, come on in. And they got this guy and the banker goes, you know, there's a bunch of people that have seer stones here. And they look at each other and they say, really? And he goes, yeah, let me call them. Maybe they'd like to see your seer stone or his seer stone, or, you know, maybe everybody'd like to just share. So he got on the phone and called all these people and they all showed up, you know, Pulsifer and this, and, you know, there's probably 10 seer stones in there. And so they were all taking pictures. My dad took pictures of them because he was a professional and took all these beautiful pictures and the Rushton stone was there and others. And he got all done and everybody's all excited about it. And and, and dad said, thank you very much. And they were glad to see each other's. And dad had a, a steer stone that he brought with him, which was Joseph Smith's seer stone, the Belcher stone, the one with the hole in it. Right. And, and that was uh, loaned to him by his dream mind buddy, who was uh, up at the dream mind at the same time he was and wrote a book on the dream mind, Norman Pierce. And that came through the Pierce family. And Norman actually promised it to my dad when he died, and that didn't happen. But uh, but anyway, so he takes these these stones and or gets done with the pictures, and then he's heading up to the first presidency's office because he wants to talk to Joseph Fielding Smith. And he goes up and he tells Joseph Fielding, "I'm writing a book on seer stones," and he goes, "Oh, that's great, that's good." And he says, uh, um, "So I want to take a picture of the chocolate stone, the chocolate chip stone, they call it." Right. And he says, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, let's uh, let's grab that. It's right here. And he went back and got it and sat it down. And dad set up his photography stuff. And he's already take this picture of this. And and uh, he's all ready to snap the picture. And in walks uh, um, Joseph Fielding's wife. And this is the second wife. And she's pretty, pretty brutal, you know. And she's like kind of bossing him around and everything. And he says, she says, well, what's Ogden doing? And well, he's taking a picture. Well, I think that seer stone's too sacred. We shouldn't take pictures of seer stones. And he goes, well, why not? Well, because it's too sacred. And he, she went on and on. And, and finally, he looks at my dad and he goes, ah, well, maybe maybe we better not, Ogden. And kind of waits his eye. Maybe we'll get it later type thing or whatever. And anyway, and so dad says, oh, okay. And so he folds up all this photography stuff, gets it all put away. And, and then he 
the joke in the family is that dad came down the the elevator and he walks outside of the church office building he looks up and he he goes hey who's running this show anyway <laughs> my wife <laughs> so anyway so uh that yeah, was kind of funny but he so that's kind of how he and he said he told me he said later i thought about it and if i had tried and planned to get everybody together and get those pictures and do all this he said i don't think i'd ever got them all together it's just like god brought them together and made it all happen wow wow and and it was that way with the sources it sounds like too people are showing up with sort with sources like hey here's this absolutely i watched it happen yeah one time i can't remember what book it was he was a fundamentalist book and he called everybody and he couldn't find this book and it you know and he knew there were books out there on it but he just couldn't find it and he's like oh my heck i don't know what i'm gonna do i just don't know i can't figure this out and so he just went in and prayed and the next day a guy came in and he goes ogden i need a couple of of, uh, photocopies of my book so that i can get it in my journal you know of all this information my great-grandfather wrote he goes oh that's the book i'm looking for can i copy it and he goes sure copy it and copy the book there's my dad's information wow Wow. So at what point did you, did you feel like, yeah, I want to keep doing this. You know, I, you know, this, this is my new profession. Cause it sounds like you were, you know, an EMT, you, you talked about working for Novell. At what point do you remember thinking, I think I have this same calling. I didn't think that at all until right before my dad died. And right before my dad died, I wasn't even thinking that. I figured dad would get better. So I wasn't thinking that at all. And my dad came in and he walks in and he sat down with me and he says, I got to tell you a story. So you remember me talking about um, Envy Lundwall. And I said, yes, I do. And Envy Lundwall had this huge archive. They call it the Lundwall Records or whatever. And, um, and he had come... Lundwall, I think, came from RLDS background. He was going to come put down Brigham Heights and prove them all wrong. And then he got into the archives and got converted. And so, uh, but he wanted to preserve the old, the old information, the old uh, principles, the old doctrines, and the old stories. So he started writing all these books, and that's what Lundwall did. And and he's got some beautiful books. And um, and then when he died. He basically died in my mother's arms almost. And then, cause he was, you know, we knew him so well. I remember him in our home a lot. And, uh, and then when Lundwall, uh, just before he died, he says, Ogden, I'm passing this work on to you. You're gonna have to continue, not just writing your own books, but also preserving old books like I did and old information and old records. And so dad, dad reprinted a lot of journals and a lot of information. And then, uh, then when dad was dying, he turned to me and said, I'm passing the baton on to you. And now it's your job to do this. And I felt the weight of that. And I felt the opposition to that all at the same time. And so I've been trying to print and reprint and also inspire other authors. There's several books that are back out on the shelves now because I just had the impression they needed to be done. I brought them in. 
I got them inspired, got the book done and finished it and got it out. What books would those be, Kevin, if you don't mind me? Asking? Well, just recently, we just did one called The Notes. Uh, it was a fundamentalist gentleman who put these notes together of all the references in the Bible and Book of Mormon and early references towards subjects that we'd all could look up and find. And so there's a lot of that that's in there. Um, you know, I kind of helped Abraham Gileadi with books. You know, there was times he couldn't afford, you know, nothing diddly. And I just, you know, said, look, I'll just print them up and get them to you, you know. And so we did that several times. There were several other books. The list kind of goes on. And and did other like authors ever go to your dad and ask him for sources? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'll tell you an interesting one. This is okay. when I was very young at Dugway. And uh, Dwayne Crowther, uh, Dwayne hadn't written any books at the time, and he just lost a daughter, and he's writing a book, I think it was Life Everlasting. And so he would call our, the phone out at Dugway, and I mean, everybody called out, the McConkeys, Scousons, you know, there were all these names, you know, that called, and I'd answer the phone, and, uh, and, and, so this Dwayne Crowler, I remember him more than anybody. And he would say, is your dad there? And I'd say, yeah, just a minute. And I'd go in and I'd say, Dwayne Crowler's on the phone. He said, okay, tell him just a minute because I'm finishing up this print job and I can't really stop in the middle of it. You know, it's really close to finishing. And if you stop, sometimes the ink dries and this happens and blah, blah, blah. And if you get the whole thing printed and he always did just a run of 500, so it wouldn't take long. So then I'm on the phone with Dwayne and I'm going, well, um, yeah, he says he'll be here in just a minute. And he says, well, Kevin, how are you? And I go, I'm doing good. What are you doing now? And I'm, well, I'm making some little model rockets. And he wanted to know all about my model rockets and what I did that day and what I was doing here. And, you know, he's the most personable guy I ever met. And I, to this day, I still, and I've met Dwayne since then. And I remember telling him some of the stories and he goes, I do remember those conversations because I just really wanted to talk to your dad and and, and you were just this bubbly little kid all excited about stuff. And so I, so I was, and it's irony because a lot of Dwayne Crowther's bookmaking materials and other things ended up in my lab to help with our, our work. Um, it was really irony. A lot of it was very interesting how that happened. But, uh, but anyway, so Dwayne was one uh, and and he would call and he would ask dad and dad gave him all the references for like prophecy key to the future. He gave him, I remember all the references and all the stories and all this and all that. And so basically Dwayne's books were created pretty much from all my dad's help. Wow. And, and my dad was open to that kind of thing. You know, one time a guy, uh, I was looking through some of the uh, farms menus and there was one thing on there about a guy who had taken my dad's three nephite books and plagiarized the whole book wow one story out just exactly the same book as my dad and then one story was the two nephites by the dream mind and so he didn't want that in there and so he plagiarized this book got it all printed sent it to deseret book and Deseret Book reprinted it under his name and made he made all this money on it. And uh, and then farms caught it and they were, you know, upset with them and everything. And so I got the article and I brought it in and I showed my dad 
And he looks at it and he goes, huh, well, that's interesting. And I said, well, aren't you going to do anything about it? You know, cease and desist or this or that or whatever. And he goes, no, why would I do that? They're getting the word out. <laughs> so, this, and, and, and that's the thing you, you could always get from, from your dad's writing, right? Is that Ogden wasn't in this just to make money. This was his calling. He was, he was, he seems to be one of those few people who's, calling walked hand in hand with his vocation right and he gave away he gave away so many books you have no idea and he always had other work he never he never depended on that he he didn't want to be a priestcraft person at all right he was really upset with people who did so he you know he covered the cost of the books and a little bit of his time but he he kept those books down price-wise as cheap as possible. I've tried the same. You know, we were selling books at $10 uh, right after dad died, and they're still $10 today, you know, and that and books have gone up in price. Papers doubled and tripled, and I'm still trying to keep the cost down. Um, he always had a job. He always had print jobs that he was working on, and so he worked very hard to make sure he wasn't making money on his, you know, his, his, uh, his, calling. his priestly office work. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm going to throw a couple names out because you, you brought them up and I want to hear about some of the interaction your dad had with them. Tell me about his interactions with Bruce R. McConkey. Okay. So Bruce, Bruce and dad were pretty close because Bruce's dad, Oscar, mm -hmm. He was always in Oscar's house and talking and doing things and whatever. And so Bruce was there and he knew dad and, um, and, and Bruce, Bruce was, he was an attorney. And so he kind of knew both sides of stories. And so he could, he could produce really good on either side. And so my dad would write Bruce letters and that would have been awesome to have all the letters my dad and him wrote back and forth, but they wrote a lot of letters back and forth. And, uh, and, and Bruce would bring up this and dad would bring up that. And I think dad pretty well won a lot of the cases there. I mean, you think he really did and uh, frustrated Bruce. He was kind of frustrated, but, but uh, what's interesting is um, one time I remember I said, Dad, how can you always quote Bruce R. McConkie? Here he is, you know, in the church and blah, blah, blah. And he said, let me tell you why I quote Bruce so much. One time, it was a very deep doctrine. I can't remember what it was about. Something with Christ and how after he was taken up, then he became like the father and other things. And he said, he said, and I thought about how to word that and word that. And one day I thought, I wonder what Bruce said about that. And so he went back and looked at it. And he said, Bruce said it impeccably perfect. And he goes, I couldn't do any better. So I just quoted Bruce. Because he's quoting this side, you know. And so he says, when he quoted on the good side or what I agreed with, it was very well written. And towards the end of uh, Bruce's life, Bruce passed away. And we were watching uh the funeral and then dad kind of went out of the room and and uh and then i left or something and came back later and he was in his room still kind of staring at his books and 
kind of kind of look kind of sad or something I walk over there and dad's kind of got some tears in his eyes and I go dad you okay and he goes oh yeah and just just kind of upset you know and I said are you crying over Bruce Diane you know I thought you guys were like you know uh mortal enemies you know and he goes no 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 he says you got it all wrong he said he said we we loved each other because it was like a tennis player you go out to you know, you got your competition, you get out there. All right, man, I'm going to beat you today, you know, and we, I'd send a letter and he'd send a letter back and I'd send a letter. And he said, we were having fun. I'd go and look up all the references. And, and, uh, and so we had fun all those years. And he said, he said, after Bruce died, my dad kind of prophetically said, he said, that's the last scholar that we will have in the upper echelons of the church. And your dad was was prophetic on calling that because there there hasn't been another scholar. There, there hasn't has. there hasn't been anybody else who's done the breadth of work that uh, that McConkie's did while he was in the in the church while he was uh, in 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 the position in the twelve. And that's interesting that that your dad had a love for Bruce R. Right? Yeah. Not many people did. I mean, Bruce was was you know elder mcconkie was a little divisive um and and the fact i think your dad shows us something still today right which is we tend to like to divide up into camps right you got the fundamentalists you got the independent fundamentalists you got someone in a group or you're a member of the lds church and for whatever reason we think there has to be animosity there here you have probably the leading scholar not probably definitely the leading scholar in mormon fundamentalism having a joyful competition with a member of the quorum of the 12 apostles in the lds church i think it speaks volumes about his character and and really should provide for us a a a glance at 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 the fact that we don't have to be enemies with someone we disagree with. We can disagree vehemently. We can disagree uh, uh, vigorously, but yet still have a love for, for the person we're contending with. Right. Yeah. And, and afterwards uh, he said, you know, the sad part is I, I just don't have anybody else to play with. <laughs> He, he he kind of felt like Bruce was on his level a little bit. Yeah, and he says now there's everybody's gone. There's nobody here. You know, I mean, I mean, Scout uh, Scouson was kind of still around for a little while there, and and uh, and he conversed with him and and Nibley, of course, but uh, but but they wrote a lot of letters. The, the interesting part with uh, with with Nibley was that Nibley. was the next name I was going to go to. Tell me about your dad's interactions with Nibley. Well, the first experience that I had, you know, I came up and I had a lot of questions and some of them were a little bit deep for that, you know, and he says, uh, maybe you need to go visit Hugh and I'll call him. And so he just picked up the phone. My son's coming up to visit you. Is that okay? Oh yeah. Yeah. Bring him on up, you know? And so I went up there and I mean, I got up there and we started our conversations, me and Hugh and he was like a hero to me. I mean, I, I, I was like Egyptology, archaeology. I worked in museums. I did all this. And so we were, we were just going back and forth, back and forth with question after question. And he's answering them. And, 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 you know, and he was 
pretty impressed, you know, with all the questions. And, uh, and one of the, one of the times I was there in his office and the secretary comes in, she goes, you, you need to get to your, uh, your class, you know, uh, you're, you're kind of late. And he goes, Oh, but this is Ogden's son. <laughs> you know, I need wow. to talk to you, you know. And so no, 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 you I'll I'll go to your class with you and I'll just hang out and listen. And afterwards we can keep talking. And he goes, Oh, that'd be great, you know. And so we went in and and I told him, you know, several I I had a, a kind of a vision when I was young about Zion and they were traveling in the wilderness with teepees and and he jumps out of his seat, you know, he's all excited. Teepees, teepees, don't you see? You always say you see. Um because uh, it's nomadic, it symbolizes nomadic, which we will be in Zion at that time. We'll be traveling in the wilderness. And so that was neat. Um, I got onto Adam God with him. He explained all the different you know, phases of that. There were all different types what was, of things. What was his take on Adam God? I think he, he well, he told, I, I did tell a story on YouTube about, uh, about that conversation. And my dad had told me that he had told him a lot of stories. Well, isn't there a lot of stories in Egyptology about Adam God? And he goes, oh, yeah, they're all over the place. And he says, well, like what? You know, and he says, well, one of them was it was kind of like a, a fairy tale, kind of where they kind of make a story up to kind of help people understand. But he said in one of the stories that the Egyptians told, well, there was this council of gods and they had finished making the earth and they got it all ready. But one of the gods had to come down and spawn off life, spawn off, you know, humanity. And so they all looked at each other and they're up there and their cushy thing. And, you know, it's nice and posh and nobody wants to go to mortality again, you know? And so, so they, uh, they, they said there was one guy like me, I'm not really paying attention, always reading a book or something. And, He's over there kind of not paying attention. And so they drew sticks and drew his the straw, the, you know, the short stick. Right. He went over there and said, you got to go down. And he goes, I don't want to go down. And they go, oh, yes, you do. You're going to go down. And they said, no, I'm not. And they grabbed him and they threw him down to earth. And he went down. And as he was going, he was stumbling and he falls and hits his nose. And, and he looks and he, he looks and he's got blood on his, his hand. And he goes, oh, no, I'm immortal. Wow. So there's so, that's the story. So so Hugh, you get this feeling that Hugh believed the Adam God doctrine? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. What about Skousen? Did he have did your dad have much interaction with 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 Cleon? Oh, I have. Uh, written stuff clear back before Cleon it was before I was born my dad in Fruta Colorado my father believe it or not actually started the uh um John Birch Society in Salt Lake City he was the one that started the John Birch and so my dad was very patriotic he knew all the day Jay Brack and Lee he knew all the guys back in the day I've got a letter my dad wrote to um, J. Edgar Hoover. My dad wrote all kinds of letters about communism, about things, you know, J. Edgar Hoover wrote back. And, uh, and so there was a lot of stuff that dad had seen in World War II and other 
things, you know, in the military about communism that kind of can, you know, scared him. A lot of stories that made him very concerned about, you know, what could happen. And so Ezra Taft Benson, by the way, they kind of knew each other in the early phases of that. However, I don't think Ezra Taft Benson uh, liked my dad's response to his uh, follow the prophet lecture because my dad wrote a response to that. So they kind of, they got a little bitter towards that, but, uh, and then that's another day, but anyway, um, uh, Skousen and my dad knew all, I remember Skousen in my home. Really? At Dugway, he came out there and they visited all the time and, and conversed and lots of letters back and forth between Skousen and all kinds of things that went on and, and he definitely knew my dad very well. They were, dad helped him on some of his research and, and some of the things. And yeah, it was really fun. Do you think uh, your dad, how'd your dad feel about his scholarship, about Skousen's scholarship? Because he wrote several books. And one that I enjoy and I remember reading was the Thousand Years series, right? Where it goes through the, the Old Testament. How, how sure. did your dad feel about his research and about his his scholarly endeavors? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but Skousen was kind of right along with dad and all these guys. Um, the very first book, remember, Skousen kind of wanted to become, he let people know he wanted to be a general authority. Mm-hmm. Okay, he, he really kind of wanted to get up into that. Now, my dad was called three or four times to be a general authority and weird things happened and kept him out of being that really one. Well, I won't go there, but anyway, this other story, um, one time. All right. I'll tell the story. Yeah. Tell, tell the story. I mean, this is about your dad. Let's tell the story. So what happens is my dad gets called. There's a calling where they call and then they have to vote on it Mm -hmm. and it has to be unanimous of who's coming in. And so it's down in Grand Junction, and um, and I heard a story or a rumor about this years ago, and I could never get the story straight. My dad would never speak a lick of it. I don't, you know, I know it's not important. My mom wouldn't say anything. Um, I just never could figure it out. And one day, I I had an uncle, Uncle Neil. He he was in a wheelchair and the church knew him very well. He made these little gold plates, you know, that were golden and they sold them at, mm. at, at Deseret Book. And, and one day I did this for Neil and he said, what can I do for you? Anything. And I said, I want to know the true story of what happened with my dad not becoming a general authority. Oh, I knew you were going to ask that question. Okay, I'll tell you. So here's what happens. So down in Grand Junction, um, they kind of met there for a conference or something going on, and he was a, a, a clerk, what do they call him, a recorder, and so he was keeping records as they, you know, notes as they were doing this, this discussion, and anyway, so all the general authorities came, oh yeah, we love Ogden, we'll all bring him in, we'll do this, and, and he says, well, um, there's only one more general authority that's coming, and uh, we have, we're waiting on him. And so then he shows up and then they say, well, the person we are trying to bring in is Ogden Kraut. What do you think about Ogden? And he said, I can't sponsor Ogden. And they go, why? What's wrong with Ogden? And he said, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Ogden. He said, it's his wife 
she's too fat. She's not general. She's not general authority material. <laughs> my Whoa. uncle, my uncle's sitting there recording, and this is his sister. And so Whoa. he just slams, he slams the pencil down and he just walks out and he goes, What's wrong with him? And they said, That was his sister. You just offended. And he goes, Oh no. And so he walks out. And then they all kind of reevaluate. Well, Ogden's got these fundamentalist ties and da da da. And well, he, you know, there's one that disagrees, so it's not going to happen. And I says, Well, and then I went back and told my dad the story. I says, This is how Uncle Neil told me. I want to know if it's truth. And he goes, Yeah, that's true, but it's not important. It's not important. And I said, wow. Well, why is it important? It seems important to me. And he goes, He goes, It's okay. It just wasn't meant to be. If I'd have got in there, I'd have just gotten thrown out probably like George P. Lee or something. I'd have wrote letters or something or said something. And so I just, I just don't think that was, uh, it was not that important. Right. Wow. So he was to be called up to that, but back to Skousen. So Skousen was kind of, you know, leading that way. And one day I was a DI with my dad and I, bought the first 2000 years and I opened the book and it was a first edition. Oh. And my dad goes, that's a first edition. Buy that right now. And Erano got it and he, he gets in the car and he goes, let me show you something. And so did you know that in the first edition of Skousen's 2000 years, he taught Adam God. Really? It's right there. Talks He's, about Adam God, Adam God, quotes Brigham Young, quotes this other stuff, da, da, da. And he said, that's why the church came down on him. And he had to rewrite that edition and get the Adam God out of there. Do you still have that? I do. That's awesome. One of these days I'll have to go over and you can show me because, man. And, and even in his rewrite, there are certain things that you can spot that are still there. Right. Yeah. You could tell that Skousen still held to that. He just had to reword it to yep. get, yeah, yeah. get approval. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So let me ask you this. We're, we're getting towards the end here. We've been on here for about two hours now. What, what do you think your dad's biggest disappointment was as he was watching Mormonism towards the end of his life? I would say it had to be all the breakdown of, of the early doctrines and early church things. And we became, all of the people were becoming more worldly. Money was very important. United order. There just, we just didn't see that anymore. There wasn't that kind of feeling. Um, Nibley talked about that. He, he personally, my, the first, Thing that my dad gave me when I first started was it was Nibley's notes, his handwritten notes on uh, his book called uh, Approaching Zion. There was one chapter in there called What is Zion a Distant View? And that What is Zion a Distant View just turned me from trying to become a millionaire and everything else, flipped me right around. And I went, okay. What is going on here? I mean, it was so provoking because it became about 
money and me progressing me rather than all of us together and bringing up and that was why in my dream our vision of the future with zion i could tell that every single human being in that group was more concerned about the others than themselves and if one man stumbled there were a thousand men there to pick him up they, they just weren't going to let that man go you know, if he was stumbling or he was heading to temptation, they all had ESP. They all knew, they all were of one heart and one mind. And so they knew each other's minds. They, it was like, you know, when I've had my near deaths where the angels talk to you mind to mind. And that happened. My mother even did that, you know, with me, you know, I'd be out somewhere and I'd hear my mom calling, you know, I'm like, that's you. Yeah get home you know i'm like oh crap mom's telling me to get home you know i had those weird kind of experiences when i was young and uh and also on my mission mm -hmm. so um so so anyway i think the most disappointing thing was the money aspect they all became about money but also the, the big corruption happening there was lots of things being corrupted in the people the fundamentalist people were losing uh, they started to get bad leaders. There were some leaders that, that came into some of the very good groups that started doing things that were just not part of the program. And you could feel the spirit of it changing. You know, the entire group feeling went down. And, uh, and then towards the end, I think he was just discouraged because so many people were just going off the deep end. They didn't care anymore. You know, he'd written all these books and wrote this stuff and nobody cared. He felt like nobody cared. You know, one of the last things that Nibley said on his deathbed, <clears throat> I don't think I did any good in this world. Mm. You know, they just, and I think great men, they, they feel like they've accomplished this, but then in the end, they, they, they don't see all the hundreds of people that they don't know the influence of what happened to right. him and i think that's kind of where my dad started feeling kind of that same way kind of maybe a loss of vision for for mormon people in general and then just in, in overall corruption well and then brigham young made a statement much like this he said i fear lest the leaders in the last days will lead our people even unto the brink of hell right and so here we are kind of edging the really terrible stuff of this world. And we're seeing that in the sexual perversions and the sexual things going on. We see all kinds of bad influences happening in families and, you know, right. it's kind of taking its toll. Sure. What do you think your dad's legacy is? What I think his legacy is? Yeah. I think the greatest legacy that I think he felt was this upcoming book where we're taking all of the books together as an encyclopedia set, and it's going to be compiled into one big book, like the very Bible that the angel brought through the window. I think that's his legacy, is those books. Right. What kind of impact do you feel your dad had? I know he had a huge impact in and outside the church. 
And, um, you know, I know people have been influenced well within the church. There were lots and lots of people who secretly were in the church and stayed in the church and whatever that, that my dad influenced, you know, in one way or another with their questions, their answers. Um, there's, there's people who I know who were going to throw the whole baby out with the bathwater and because they got a hold of dad's books, they stuck with the program. They stuck with trying to understand and, and keep going. That's what I, I hope for or wish I could get out there to most of the people in the church is because just like me, when I started learning that, gosh, we've been lied to, you know, I mean, uh, Bruce R. McConkie was saying on one point, oh, Brigham Young never taught this doctrine of Adam God. And dad got after Bruce and he said, why did you do that, Bruce? I mean, now the anti-Mormons are saying, look, here we can show all these places where Adam God was taught. And here's these references. And I had an anti come to me in the, in the uh, mission field one time and showed me all these controversial things. And I looked at it and they go, oh, that's a great verse. I like that one. That proves Adam God really well. You should have seen their face. They didn't know how to handle that. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and so, so I don't know. You know, his influence with, I, I remember a man that's very prominent in our community, uh, owned the big business. And he's not LDS. And he said, your dad's stuff went everywhere. I was up in deep Alaska hunting on a big old hunting thing. We're bored. There's no TV. There's no anything. We can't get anything. It's just bored out of my gourd. And I go to this little hut that they call the library. And there was a bunch of your dad's books there. <laughs> he goes, man, they're everywhere. They were everywhere for a long time. A lot of people had his books and went there you know i'm i'm gonna say something now. i've told it before on the podcast but i i want to tell you when because i entered fundamentalism in probably the most um head first way you can do it i started practicing plural marriage before i knew much of anything about adam god or anything else and i remember trying to figure out where it was i was supposed to go to have me and my second wife sealed and I was just worried sick about getting it done. And it was one of your dad's articles it came out of a book about a solemn covenant. And I read that and there was so much comfort in that and so much we can do this, right? I think, let me rephrase that. I really believe at this point, we're going to see your dad's work start to play a more prominent role. Um, just shortly be before or shortly after I started this podcast, Under the Banner of Heaven came out, the movie on, on Hulu about the Lafferty's. And there were all sorts of questions coming in about blood atonement, about Adam God doctrine, about these old obscure Mormon doctrines that just aren't taught anymore. I would dare to bet that your dad's work had a tremendous influence on just keeping people in the LDS church, right? Forget fundamentalism, just in the LDS church, because it's the one place you can go where you're not going to get spin. You're not going to get proselytizing in terms of come join this group. It's just straight 
fact. And straight fact is non-threatening because it just is what it is. The truth has no agenda. To me, the feeling I had when I read your dad's work on the solemn covenants, when I read your when 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 I read your dad's work on Adam God, I think that's his legacy, right? He compiled all this. And I think like most great men, they never get to see what their legacy is. It's only afterwards, right? Moses didn't get to see the promised land. He got to see it, but he never got to enter it. And I think your dad is probably right there, right? Never really getting to see exactly what he's done. But the work that he did was ju has just been vital to fundamentalists everywhere. So what is it you do now with, with your dad's work? Where, what are you up to these days? Okay, let me um, let me interject real quick because you brought up a good point that I want to tell a story about Hugh Nibley. Yeah, and this is on Dad's legacy and mm -hmm. people who he'd influenced and, and that kind of thing. And uh, I went up to, to Hugh's and I was talking to him, and I said, "You know, Hugh, I'm reading all my dad's books and I'm feeling the spirit of it. I mean, it's just all making sense. It's just, I mean, I just I don't get it. He's excommunicated and this and that. And he turned to me and he said." Your dad, every book I've read of your dad so far, there are a few that he hadn't written at the end. It all is the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he said, your dad, there are people that come to me all the time and they want to know about this Adam God doctrine. And he says, I can't answer that. And so he says, I send them down to the library if you get this Ogden crowd book and they read it. And then I said, he says, and then I want you to go read it. And then I want you to come back and talk to me. And invariably they'd come back and they'd say, okay, Hugh, I got it. I got it all figured out. No problem. They go back to doing their church callings. They're all good. They're all happy. And he says, he says, uh, your father has saved more people from the anti-Mormons than any person I know. Yeah, no, I believe it 100%, without a doubt, without a doubt. So I, I think it, it was going now with my legacy, as you wanted to know what I'm trying to do is we have been working very hard to get that big book done, okay? But I'm also allowing people to like uh, online on ogdenkraut.com. You can go there and you can read all of dad's books on there for free. And how that came was a dream because all the other fundamentalist guys, they know, you know, uh, they, they have their books for sale. They don't just have it online for free. And dad lost a lot of book sales because he, he had some of them online and I was questioning whether I should do that or not. And one night I had a dream and it was a weird dream, but I saw the savior sitting there with another man. And this man is arguing and he's saying, but I didn't know because this and this, and, 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 and I just didn't get that information. It wasn't available. And the savior turned to him and said, well, all of that information was online on Ogden Kraut dot com for free wow. and then that was the answer to my prayer and i wake up and i'm going well i guess we're gonna put these all online for free 
Right. And so that's how that happened. And so the books are in circulation. They're out there for people to read. I, I want to reach more people with the information. You know, dad would want that to get out, to spread that out and get more into it. And we're trying to get where people can just push a button and listen to it because a lot of people can listen while they're doing things. Mm -hmm. There's readers, reader apps that can do that, but we just need this to, to get it better so that people can just like on YouTube, it'd be nice if they could, it had one already reading the whole book or part of the book. Right. I don't know. How, however we can get that information out. Perfect. And then now I'm a big believer in owning the book, right? Just because I'm always scared of the internet not being available or, or I know whatever. A lot of people I included feel that way. If someone wanted to go buy those books from you, where do they go to do that? Where do they go to purchase those books? Okay, so we have a, an actual print shop. It's in Santa Quinn. And there's a, as a phone number, it's 801-609-2222 for twos. And we have a P.O. box. It's P.O. box 222, Santa Quinn, Utah, 84655. And can they just walk into the print shop and buy some? That they can walk in the print shop. We're open from nine to six every day, except for Saturday and Sunday. And what's the and, name of the uh, print shop? Old Pioneer Press. Perfect. Now, my Perfect. dad's was Pioneer Press, so I had to change it a little. So I changed to Old Pioneer Press. Perfect. All right. Well, yeah, I, I can't recommend your dad's books highly enough. In fact, I, Kevin, I need you to stick around after this podcast is over because I want to figure out how to get a copy of Enzyme of the, to the Nations. But uh, yeah, I can't encourage any, everybody to go out and, and get his book, whether you're LDS or whether you're a fundamentalist or whatever it is, great resources, good information, just straight truth. So Kevin, is there anything you want to say as, as we wrap up here tonight? Well, I'm really grateful we did this because there's a couple stories that I've never told. And I think they were, they're very important for people to understand, but I think, I think people need to really get back to the, in the LDS church today, I think they need to get back to the roots, beginnings of our church and what was being told. We talked a lot about Adam God today <clears throat> and a lot of things that Joseph talked and taught didn't get recorded. There's a lot of things that other people said, and there's a lot of discrepancy. Oh, well, Joseph didn't say that. I actually found a, a gentleman who had actually dug up a story in one of the journals where two men walked up to Joseph and said, teach us more stuff, Joseph. And he's out chopping wood as he always did. And so he's working and he says, well, let's switch gears. You come over here and you chop the wood and I'll preach the sermon. <laughs> so they said, oh, okay. So they're out chopping all the wood. And he's over there and he's preaching. And as he's teaching all these concepts, he gets to this one part that talks about Adam God. And so that was where Joseph taught Adam God. And, and, you know, a lot of the Adam God doctrine got kind of separated with, uh, with situations with um, Orson Pratt kind of came down through that line, came down into Joseph Fielding Smith with uh, Bruce R. McConkie. There was some lineage there of that whole not liking the uh the adam god doctrine and so um so there's an experience where 
Joseph did teach it. And I think it's important because we in the church need to look at these old doctrines and, and search them out. The other thing I wanted to say before we conclude is a lot of fundamentalists found really interesting stories. There was a story that in 1886, they called it the visitation of with John Taylor of Jesus Christ, Joseph Smith, others, and all that was recorded by, by L. John Nuttall in his journals. Now, I went back and we tried to find those journals, and, and that one journal that contained the 1986 era is gone <laughs> out of church archives. And the, I know some of the Nettle family, and we were trying to find it, and then we turned around and couldn't find it anymore. And so uh, I found it online on eBay one day just out of the blue, I happened to look and was looking through books. And here's the L. John Nuttall, that same book that was right there, the original, and they wanted $5,000 for it. Whew. So I call up the Nuttall family. He calls four or five friends. He gets the 5000 Wow. So we're ready to buy this book. And, and he does all this bad eBay stuff. He, he promised it to us. And then he sold it to this other place and then i got a hold of him i got his phone number talking to the guy and he goes well i had another person who offered me way more money than that for that book Ugh. and i said can i ask who it was and he goes oh sure there's the lds church oh geez so you'd think the lds church would get it and put it back in their file you know so the whole book is complete the whole set is not there and so that got yanked. And so now when we reference, oh, it's in the L. John Nuttall journal and it's in, it's in uh, uh, the LDS archives and you go there and it's not there. And so what started happening with our family and others was that we started seeing things being pulled off the shelves and where nobody has access to those. Like, I, I, you know, we mentioned Denver Snuffer and, and Phil Davis, which are both friends. But uh, one of the things is said, well, Joseph never taught polygamy and no, nobody had done this and he goes well can you prove those kevin and i said sure but i'm not going to give you those references because the minute we give those references out some scum character in the archives or whatever takes it out of the archives and then we can't find it so there's some of the discrepancies happening with church archives and so so that's what's hard that's disappointing but even Denver Snuffer, as I said, he called and said, your father has so much information we can't even find in the archives anymore. Right. So, so back to thank the heavens for what my father's work did and all the progressive work. And hopefully Absolutely. we can continue it on and make it happen. Absolutely. Well, dude, this was fun. We should do this again. Okay. If you're up for it, I'd love to have you on to talk to the dream mind, uh, talk about the dream mind. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to do it. Bye, everybody.